Where do we begin? Uh, LA Times, uh, Mark Barbarak, back in uh, the month of April, wrote an article on how the coronavirus was changing the way that we talk, all the way down to the language that we use. And in it, he gave a couple of new uh, terms, new titles, one of them being the, the quarantini. Uh, but the one that we'll focus on today is this, this word that he uh, kind of came up with of doom scrolling. Doom scrolling, he described as an excessive amount of screen time that is devoted to the absorption of dystopian news, doom scrolling. It's the thing that no doubt you might have found yourself caught doing uh, in the midst of the news or the midst of, of whatever been going on. You get caught in this constant scrolling and reading and reflecting, and you just get caught in that little space. Now that was written back in April, but it seems to me that since April, that we have found more and more uh, abilities and opportunities uh, to doom scroll, to get caught up in that excessive amount of dystopian news. And, and the reality is that as we come into the month of August, we find ourselves doom scrolling, not by having to go in and look for it or, or clicking on a certain hashtag, but really just from turning on our phones. If you get news alerts, the moment you turn on your phone each morning, or at least pick it up, you find yourself doom scrolling. With pandemics, injustice, this past week with the Beirut port explosion, protests throughout Lebanon, and then even as, as early as this morning now, um, resignation of, of leadership. There's economic fallout in the midst of the pandemic that's affecting us and, and vocation and work for so many of us. The political mess that our country is in, transitions that many of us are facing over these next few months of trying to figure out where it is that we're going to be planting ourselves once the dust settles. Turmoil and even just sickness. The reality is that we don't have to look for the doom anymore. It seems like it's on our front porch. And so the thing is, is that I've been reflecting on the reality of being the teaching pastor here at Collective and and trying to bring God's word to us and and developing what he's speaking to us and how strange it is to do that and try to offer something where we have spent six days, once again, to use that word of doom scrolling that has left us anxious and fractured. It leaves me on a regular basis as I was preparing for this week, unsure where to begin in my talk. And so what I wanted to do today was actually, instead of, you know, saving prayer, you know, to kind of kick us off after reading the scripture or just simply at the end, just begin with a few minutes of prayer in the midst of all that we've been going through within our world. I mean, there's just, you know, on one level, it's it's part of us existing here in the 21st century with cameras in everyone's back pocket that we can watch. Uh, For example, this past week, the the Beirut port explosion, not just, you know, hearing about it in the news or just seeing a picture of the destruction after the fact, but literally watch it happen from hundreds and hundreds of different perspectives of of wedding photography where it happens in the middle of it, someone on their port. And and I don't know if the human psyche were capable of of dealing with that. At least we haven't developed that ability yet. And so all all that to say, I'm getting a bit rambly here. I just, we, I, I just wanted to start with some prayer today. Um, as we begin, just to set our, our hearts in a, in a proper place. So I might just ask you just to join me, get settled in, and, um, and let's just open uh, with, with a word of prayer today. So Father, first and foremost, uh, we're grateful that each and every one of us have, have uh, that we opened our eyes and we crawled out of bed today. We made our way uh, over to, uh, for so many of us, um, that, that first cup of coffee. Uh, that we, we awoke to another sunrise, uh, to uh, whether that's just life, 
um, or even our, our spouse or our roommates or our kids. God, that there's a gift in being alive. And in the midst of so much darkness, I think sometimes we can lose our gratitude for that. And so we ask that you just help us to just take a moment to be thankful for what we have this morning. In the midst of that gratitude, Father, we're um, aware of the uh, absence of so much that uh, in the midst of this pandemic and the fallout and the initial destruction and what happened in Beirut this past week, that there are so many that uh, on this Sunday morning uh, did not uh, open their eyes. And so God, we pray that you would be with their family members, to be with their friends, to be with the community around this loss of life. God, it just comes to mind the uh, uh, acquaintances and, and friends who have lost loved ones in the midst of this pandemic that, that aren't even able to grieve properly with a funeral. God, there's just a lot of darkness in this world and loss of life, and it just becomes difficult uh, to keep that sort of resilience each day to wake up and to keep going. And so, Father, my prayer is that you might help us to see the world as you do, as something that is uh, deeply broken and yet so beautiful still. Help us to find those opportunities to contrast the beauty in the midst of the darkness. God, we pray that you would be with us today as we open the scriptures. I pray that we would hear your word as speaking something new, that we would see the cross of your son Jesus and his resurrection in a new light connected to this story. Would you speak to us? Give us a word and what it means to be your people. And Father, for my friends that are here and, and, and logging in that don't identify as a Christian, or maybe they, they do, um, but maybe it hasn't clicked with them or it's not right now or it hasn't, that you might speak in a powerful way to each of them today. So God, we pray you'd be with us. We're thankful that we know that you are. You've shown yourself as faithful to your people, uh, even as we're not gathering in person. You still speak through your word. And so we pray that you do that again today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we just prayed about coming out of this week and, and knowing what, where do we go from here and, and where are we here, um, I found myself with a deep need and desire just to remember and reflect on what our hope is as Christians. And in my mind, as I began to just question and reflect on that, I, it brought me to uh, a fish dinner that Jesus had with his disciples. Fish dinner that Jesus had with his disciples. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse uh, 36, we find Jesus um, arrives and finds uh, his disciples there scared and not knowing what in the world is going on. At this point on this Easter Sunday, all they know is that the tomb is is empty and it seems as though someone has stolen his body, though there have been reports that Jesus is in fact alive. He comes and he finds his disciples. He stands there with them and uh, he says, peace to you. And it says that they're all frightened and they think that they're seeing a ghost. And he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He calls for them to touch him and see that it's actually him. And the way that they see that it's actually Jesus who's physically raised from the dead is by not just touching him and seeing him, but by offering him dinner. And so he sits there and he's eating this, this piece of broiled fish and he's eating it right there in front of him. And they're able to see this isn't just some ghost. This is really Jesus. And as he's eating his fish dinner, Jesus says this, uh, Luke 24, what does Jesus say while he's eating? Well, he's got fish in his mouth while he's eating his dinner. He says this, then Jesus said to them, 
these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and should rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So just, I mean, to bring this all together is that I, you know, I, sometimes we just read this as Jesus just standing kind of, you know, like an action figure, just not moving. He just kind of says this. The picture that Luke gives us is this is Jesus sitting down at the dinner table. Like he's cutting up the fish, maybe I don't know, forks or whatever utensils they would have had. But he's, he's eating as he's saying, look, this is, you guys are all freaking out about me. This is exactly what I told you guys was going to happen. And what does he say specifically was, was going to happen? That everything written about Jesus in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures must be fulfilled. Now, if you were with us last week, this uh, statement of fulfillment is exactly what we just talked about. And so when Jesus says everything must be fulfilled, the disciples would go, yeah, we know Jesus, the divine ideal that you've come to fulfill the commands by telling us the deeper application of them. The fulfillment of justice is love. We know that you fulfilled the law. We've seen your healings. We've seen your prophetic ministry against injustice. We've seen your love. But what Jesus says is that actually this fulfillment goes deeper than what we looked at last week. And for them to see it, it requires an opening of their minds as they understand the scriptures is what it says. So the Jesus opens their mind to understand the scriptures and thus it is written. And he recounts how the cross, his death on the cross, his resurrection bodily risen from the dead, that these two things together are the climax of the story. They are the center of human history. And and, well, how is the question that the disciples would have asked? And it's clear that Jesus opens their minds by explaining this to them. This is on my top probably three or four moments that I wish I could go back in time to be with. You know, people, the resurrection, the walking on water, you know, whatever it might be for you. This is one of them for me that I just wish I could have been at the dinner table here, right? You know, somebody passed you know, pass the fish down here. Can I get some bread, a little bit of wine? As we're sitting there listening, what looks like an, a long conversation into the evening where Jesus is explaining how the whole story is fulfilled and what just happened that weekend in Jerusalem. And the reality is, is that we've been doing that over the past couple of weeks, haven't we? Throughout the Old Testament throughout even the teachings of Jesus is each week looking at what the story is saying of the foundation of justice, the family of justice in Israel, the formation or the failure and the prophets, whatever it might be. And each week ending with how does this all come together in the person and work is specifically the cross, his death and the resurrection of Jesus. We do it every single week. And that goes even beyond just what we've been doing through the story of justice. If you've been with Collective for a while, if you are uh, no stranger of my teaching of what we do is that this is my regular thing is not just to explain the scriptures, but actually to open our minds to understand how they are fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. We did it with Mark. We did it with first Peter. That's I'm going to die doing that is, is continually doing that. Uh, And that's just me standing in line with 2000 years of church history of communities and teachers and preachers who have all been returning to the law, the prophets and the Psalms and opening folks' minds to greater know the love of Christ as revealed in his cross and his resurrection. And so what's going on at the cross and resurrection? When we see the myriad of ways that we can understand it through each week opening the scriptures, we realize that the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just a picture on a wall for us to look at. 
Some of us have such a frozen uh, 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 picture of, of the cross and resurrection of what it means to me. And the reality is, is that it, is, it functions far more like a kaleidoscope or a mosaic the death of Jesus and his resurrection. In that a kaleidoscope or a mosaic may be one picture, one thing that you're looking at, but it is made up of a myriad of pieces of glass and pottery and ceramic or colors and shapes that as you turn the canister, you find it being the same thing and yet reflecting and showing itself in brand new powerful ways. The cross is, is, is just this insane, profound, moment in human history. And to summarize it in one talk is an impossibility. And so this is really my, my little forward to get myself off the hook with trying to summarize everything that happened that weekend in Jerusalem in one talk. Rather today is simply just a meditation of, of kind of my own over this past week of how does the cross and resurrection speak to the story of justice? And again, even that would take three or four weeks just to preach on. And so today, this is not the final word. This is not the, the me doing anything. I, I just, I, it's, I, to, to quote Paul in Ephesians 3, his prayer that the church in Ephesus might experience over the course of their entire lives is that they might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That they might know that which surpasses knowledge. And so the big question today, what we're just gonna be looking at is what does the fulfillment of the story of justice have to do with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. What does that mean for us today? And so we're not gonna be looking at a narrative of the crucifixion, of his betrayal, his arrest, trial before Pilate, his crucifixion. Uh, that, that whole story, we actually went through that just a few, it was a few months ago. It might, for some of you, feel like a few days ago. For some of you, it might feel like a few years ago, back on Good Friday. And so today what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at one example of this fulfillment that Jesus is talking about in the prophets. And then we're gonna spend the remainder of our time looking at uh, some of the words of the apostle Paul and his own meditations on what the cross and the resurrection mean for us. So uh, let's get into it. Let's look at Zechariah uh, chapter 12. And then we're gonna pull from um, 12, 13, and 14 and kind of bring all these together. So you'll see them in a moment. So I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna see how this actually connects to everything that we just read with Jesus's words. So Zechariah 12, the prophet says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Again, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea, half of them to the Western Sea. That's the way saying of it's global. It goes everywhere. It shall continue in summer as in winter. That is not just global, but it's eternal. It's always going. It's, it's seasonal. It's not seasonal. It's always going. And what? And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Now, what we just read over is this prophecy of Zechariah that's, that's kind of this confusing thing as you look at. It. I mean, right there, when, you, when uh, in verse 10, he talks about the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look on me on him whom they have pierced. It's this confusing little grammatical thing that's going on there. Is, is Jerusalem and their people going to be looking at God or on him whom they have pierced? 
Well, why, if it's just God is the one that they've pierced, why not just say on, on me, who they, right? There's some kind of strange little thing that's going on here where somehow it is God who is being pierced and yet someone distinctive from, it's just a little grammatical, hmm, okay. And then on whom they have pierced, this is not God talking about him going to the mall and getting a nose ring or something like that. This is pierced as in a sword or a spear piercing you. This is death. And what's strange is that it seems as though and on this same day that, that it seems like God or this distinctive God, but not God is, is pierced that there was going to be a fountain opened. That is, and living waters are going to come forth. And as those living waters come forth, they're going to spread over all the earth beginning from Jerusalem, right? And then people are going to come there to cleanse their sin and uncleanness, which if you read just a, a couple chapters earlier in Zechariah is what? It's the perversion of legal justice. It's the individual and systemic oppression of the quartet of the vulnerable from back in the prophets of the uh, widow, the fatherless, the sojourner and the poor. We got all four right there. So Israel, though unjust and idolatrous, one day there is going to be God, but distinct from God, pierced. And when that happens, a fountain will burst forth where people can come and cleanse themselves from their sin. That they might be righteous and clean, that they might be put right. And then, I mean, so, okay, now, okay, before we, we keep going, just notice the Luke 24, that what's happening here is that Jesus says, you know, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and, and specifically rise from the dead means that he was dead so that he would suffer and die. Well, where do we see that within the old Bible? We see this picture of, of him, the Lord, and yet distinct from, from God, but distinct within God, this one who is pierced, this one who dies. On the third day, rising from the dead and that rising being, again, that, that weird, strange thing. How will be the Lord at the end in verse, uh, chapter nine, verse nine of chapter 14, be the Lord who is king over all the earth if he is the one who is pierced. There's a whisper of resurrection here, even in Zechariah. And then you have what? That the, the, the repentance, the spirit of grace, the pleas for mercy, for the forgiveness of sin, them from sin and uncleanness shall be proclaimed in his name. What name? The Lord who is one and his name will be one from Zechariah. And all of this, this fountain going forward will begin in Jerusalem, which is exactly what we find with this fountain of justice that, that's flowing forward. So I, again, maybe that's a little confusing, hopefully not too much, just to see explicitly how when Jesus says, hey, this is what the law and the prophets and the Psalms were talking about. Zechariah gives us one really clear example where if you just go looking for it, you can find it really quickly. Thus it was written. So this is all just one example of thus it is written, how Jesus seems to understand himself as fulfilling the law, the prophets and the Psalms. In fact, this continues with Jesus's disciples where uh, the apostle uh, John, who was there at the fish dinner, right? He was sitting there eating dinner with everybody as Jesus was explaining this. He actually, when he goes back to compile his gospel, his biography of the story of Jesus, he himself reflects and develops Zechariah's prophecy. In John chapter 19, verses 33 through 37, Jesus, after being crucified on the cross, he says this, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, and then it kind of will we'll jump over where they don't break his legs because breaking the legs of people that have been crucified back in the day was the way to ensure that they were actually dead. But they see he's already dead, so they don't break his legs. A fulfillment of another prophecy. One of the soldiers come and they pierced Jesus's side with a spear, pierced with a spear. And at once they came out 
both blood and water. John, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. So do you see how John pulls from Zechariah and as he's contemplating and thinking about it, he sees Jesus explicitly as the one who is pierced, but notice not just the piercing, but what comes out at the piercing. Mark, John doesn't have to tell us what came out. We would, we'd probably be able to guess. You pierce somebody, he comes out. What does he explicitly mention comes out with the piercing of Jesus? We're getting kind of gory right now, I know. But we have blood and what? And water. Okay, so where do we go? The one who is pierced on that day, there's this fountain of water that will be used for the cleansing of the nations. Right? Back to Zechariah. We're right here. You see the piercing of the Lord from Zechariah and then that next chapter talking about this fountain of justice that's going to come forth are not separate events. John actually places them together and having them happen at the same moment. On the cross, the Lord is pierced and the fountain for cleansing opens. And the scriptures have been fulfilled, not only in the death, but also in the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question is, just after looking at this example, what does this mean for the story of justice? How do we understand the full story now? How, because we've worked so much through the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms and the wisdom literature and the law. Okay, what does the cross and resurrection mean for us? If this is true, if this is the story that's happened now, Jesus fulfilling this in a profound way. So we're going to spend the, uh, a good chunk of the rest of our time just looking at one of Paul, the Apostle Paul's, his own meditations on this in Romans chapter three. So let's jump over to Romans chapter three. If you have your Bibles or your little app, you can do it. I've got mine right here. And we're going to go, uh, because I missed it so much, we're going to go verse by verse or so. And I'm just going to, we're going to read a verse, unpack it, uh, because that's my bread and butter and I've been missing it over the past few weeks. So Romans 3 verse 21 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So think about this. He says, Something has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets, but they do bear witness to it. What's another word we could use for something that goes beyond one thing, but is totally in line with it? Fulfillment. This is Paul's way of saying everything that Jesus has been telling us for the past you know, two weeks now, everything Jesus said about his own death and resurrection. I am the fulfillment. I, have been, I, am, I am apart from the law and yet it's, it's absolutely all about me. They bear witness to me. So this is Paul's just way of saying everything that we've been saying for the past two weeks, that God's righteousness is what he says has been fulfilled. Now, this is interesting because Jesus says, I am the one that they point to. Do you see that? Is Jesus shows up and he says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Paul says it's the righteousness of God. So is Paul contradicting Jesus? I don't think so. Based on what we just read, if we're thinking about Jesus's death and resurrection as the fulfillment, then that means that Jesus's death and resurrection is in fact the righteousness of God on display. It's manifested that way. Now, 
Deep breath. You guys are going to Greek out with me for a second. Now, what that means is as we read the English translations, these are absolutely trustworthy. And yet oftentimes the ways that the Bible gets translated for the best way of us reading it and understanding it, there's little nuances that can get missed. This doesn't mean absolute translation, like throw them out. This is still such a trustworthy thing, but this is why it's really helpful to have really uh, Bible nerdy friends like me who can, who can help point this out to you. So I want to explain something. So bear with me and then we'll, we'll keep rolling. Uh, if you remember back to the work uh, that we did on the family of justice and the law and prophets, we were reading from the Old Testament written in Hebrew, right? The Hebrew. And we had two words that we looked at in particular, righteousness and justice, tzedakah and mishpat. And how these two words were kind of like little friends and they just rode on a bike everywhere together throughout the Old Testament, right? Anytime justice showed up, righteousness was right behind. Anytime righteousness was there, it seemed like justice was, was somewhere nearby. They were best friends. What's interesting is that when the uh, Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, gets translated into the Greek, which would have been the Bible that the Apostle Paul would have been using, these two ideas of tzedakah and mishpat get translated into one uh, singular Greek word group. That of uh, diakasune, uh, diakios, uh, no, it's dikaios, dikaisune, um, you guys don't care. Same word group. Uh, what we translate um, as, as normally righteous or something like that, or righteousness. So the idea being is in the Old Testament, righteousness and justice were two friends on little bikes and they rode around everywhere. They were best friends, always together. In the New Testament, it becomes what I saw on Overland while I was driving over today, is it's like a couple on a tandem bicycle. They are literally on the same bike together. They literally go hand in hand with one another. And that's what happens with the Greek word righteousness, as we translate it, righteousness, righteous, just, justified, these are all the same Greek word. When you look underneath it, it's diakasune, dikaiosis. It's, it's one of these, dikaiu. And th so the whole idea here is that justice and righteousness, though to us are separate terms and themes in English, and or even separate, but really paired together in the Hebrew, when you read your Greek New Testament, you are reading them being the essentially same thing. As Fleming Rutledge puts it in her book on the crucifixion, God's righteousness is the same thing as his justice. And his justice is powerfully at work in justifying that which does not, uh, justifying that which does not mean excusing or passing over or even forgiving and forgetting, but actively making right that which is wrong. So righteousness is not some abstract theme. It is God's way of putting things right in the world. And so, uh, if you just look for, you know, this, this can transform the way that you read the New Testament. I'm, I'm almost done geeking out. But if you, if you start reading the New Testament now, and when you see the word righteousness or righteous or justified or just, and you think in terms of what we could just say, putting right or putting rightness, it, it'll just, it'll bring a whole new light to the way that you're reading it. So let's jump back into this and think about this now. In verse 21, just to read it again, but now, the, the, the justice of God, that is the putting right of God, the putting rightness of God has been fulfilled. It is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And he goes, the what? The putting rightness, the justice, the righteousness of God that comes through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Which hopefully, if you've been paying attention, this, this should bring you right back to the family of justice conversation with Abraham. 
at the very beginning of the story of Israel, where Abraham, what? Believed faith in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, as being as one that is put right. From Genesis 15, verse six. And so what the apostle Paul is saying is that now you and me, regardless of whether or not you're Gentile or Jew, by our faith in the death and the resurrection, the life and the person of Messiah Jesus, his putting rightness through all of that, that we now belong to the family of justice. And so the cross, what does this mean for us? The cross is the center point of the story because in some way, as we're gonna see more in a minute, it is the putting right of God for all people. Which leads us to the first question that maybe you're asking, well, why all people? As I look out on the world, it seems like the problem, the putting right that needs to happen is actually with, with those people, right? It's, it's Lorenzo, it's April, it's not me that needs to be put right, or it's that political party over there. They're the ones that need to be put right. It's not so much me. I need like a little bit of help. Like if Jesus could hold my hand and kind of help me, that's more of what I need. I don't need put rightness. I think I'm pretty much okay. What does Romans 33, uh, 22 say as it continues? It says this, For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what does this look like? In the preceding verses of what we're just reading back in verse 10, all the way through 18 of chapter three, Paul spends a whole chunk of time. You can just see it if you have your actual Bible there, quoting from the Old Testament on its revelation of the fact that humanity is a huge mess. It says in Jeremiah 23, the prophet, none is righteous, no, not one. No one is what? Righteous, diakasune. No one is just. No one is put right. Nobody is right. Not one. Nobody understands. Nobody seeks for God. Everybody, they they turn aside after idols and injustices and, and together become worthless. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, he describes everybody as being quick to shed blood. Regardless of whether or not you identify yourself this way, scripture wants to acknowledge there's something going on within the human heart. That the divide between good and bad, just and unjust, is not the divide between you and them, but as the Soviet dissident and Christian writer um, in the notes, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I don't even know, that's my best attempt. What he wrote after reflecting on his time in Soviet Russia was this, the line separating good and evil passes passes not through states, nor between classes, nor political parties either, but right through every single human heart. Every single human heart has the divide between unjust and just, between true worship and idolatry. And we all seem to be bent in the direction of our own destruction. As he puts it, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. What does he mean? We're not shining anymore? The glory, the radiance, like I don't glow There's an incredible work that um, Dr. Haley Gorenson Jacob has done on acknowledging how in the book of Romans, when Paul writes glory, he's not talking simply about God's glowingness or something like that. It's his way in keeping with Psalm uh, chapter eight of talking about the image of God. 
This goes all the way back to the foundation of justice conversation that we had. Every single human is what the image of God that had been given this dignity and value as a royal representative, as we've been teaching my, my three-year-old daughter to be in the image of God means that everyone is a prince and princess. And yet we have un misused our royal vocation to misform and unfill the world on individual and generational and systemic level. Like we're right back to the beginning of the story here. And that's what Paul's reflecting on is the failure of justice on our part. And so the reality is, is that with this image of God so broken within us, here it is, no one is exclusively oppressor or oppressed. Everyone contributes in some way to the injustice and evil in this world. There is no binary us versus them, but a declaration that everybody, everybody has fallen short of that the, the prince and princess status that we have been given by the creator God, that it's fractured and marred within us. And so we unform the world and we're unfilling it as we bring chaos and destruction based on our selfishness, our idolatry and injustice into the world. And so the reality is that because all of us have sinned, that also means that all of us have been sinned against. Once again, there's no clean binary oppressed versus the oppressor. Everyone is both a victim and perpetrator of sin and injustice against one another. We all bear abuse and shame and pain of what people have said or done or not said or not done on our behalf. We've all sinned and we've all been sinned against. So what Paul is doing here is, and he's not simply saying that, oh, racism and genocide are the same as you gossiping to your coworker. He's no stretch of the imagination. Is that what Paul is saying here? Or is he even simply saying that all sin is simply individual. And so all we need to do is make everybody, you know, they just need to repent of it. There are different ways that our different sins, how we form and fill the world need to be dealt with. What Paul is saying is that anytime we might seem to say, I'm just, I'm put right, they aren't, we are completely in contrast with the story of scripture. That every single human being has a line between good and evil going right through them. So what does this mean? This means that for humanity in this world to be put right, it is not gonna come through human hands. Now that is, don't miss, you know, hear me as, as, you know, discounting everything that I've said over the past few weeks, that we as Christians are called to justice. But what it means is that Christians need to be realists to understand that a utopian vision is not going to happen this side of the new heavens, new earth. You're gonna hear more about this in two weeks, but that does not negate the fact that we're called to do justice. That does not mean that we can't move the bar a little bit closer to reflect. And we're gonna get more into that in a few weeks, but the big, the big point here in what, what Paul is saying here is the cross declares the need for all people to be put right. And that putting right is only gonna happen through the work of God as through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. Romans 3, 24 through the beginning of 25 says this, though all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? And sinned, we've done idolatry and injustice. He says this, and are justified. There it is, that same word group. They are put right by his grace, God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's a big word for the day, by his blood to be received by faith. Two big words right there that we can't glean over. One is the justified, which is that same word put right. They've had justice done for them by God's grace through two things, both the redemption in Christ Jesus and the propitiation by his blood. That these are the two ways 
again, the kaleidoscope turns. These are two colors or two shapes, two you know, pieces of ceramic within the mosaic of redemption and propitiation that Paul pulls on. Let's just look at both of them in a moment. So first is redemption. It's a word we may not use, but redemption to redeem something or someone goes all the way back in the story to the Exodus account. Israel understood their redemption as occurring and happening when Moses showed up and led them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. That was their redemption, where a people who were oppressed and sinned against and enslaved, not just to the gods of the Pharaohs, but the Pharaohs themselves and their people, where Moses entered into that place and brought them out, winning a huge victory and crushing the enemy. The redemption is now a new one in which Jesus has come and entered into our slavery, our oppression, our destruction, our chaos, everything that we find ourselves sinned against so that he might lead us as a new exodus to the promised land, which in a moment we'll see is the new heavens and new earth. This is why without Easter Sunday, Christianity is bust. Without Easter Sunday, without the resurrection is what I mean by that, is we have a, a Moses who joins us in Egypt, but can't do anything to bring us out of it. So, so in that way, God can understand. He knows what we've been through, but he can't actually win salvation for us. We, we have to have a bodily resurrection. Otherwise, we've just got a Jesus in heaven who, you know, he knows what it's like to die, but he can't actually do anything about it. Um, there's a whole, I'm gonna, that's an Easter sermon one day. Uh, <laughs> the next thing is not just redemption, but also this big word propitiation, which another way that you can translate the actual word behind that is the sacrifice of atonement is how you can translate it. Of atoning, that doesn't help. <laughs> if we go propitiation, here's how you can understand it better. Sacrifice of atonement. The big idea is it's a, a, a sacrifice which covers sins, both done against us, but in particular, the atoning sacrifice is one that covers the sins that we have done. To go back to what we talked about in a moment, that everybody has been sinned against, that is redemption brings us out of that, and that we have sinned against others. That's what propitiation is for. And that like the sacrifice of atonement in the priesthood of Israel, that on that sacrifice, that that animal was somehow seen as dying in my place, and as ascending, as being brought before God so that I might be in God's presence. This thing is getting what I deserve so that I might go free, so that I might live. And so like the sacrifice of atonement, it's by his blood, it's by Jesus's cross, his death, that he enters into this place as not just being a sheep that we have to offer every single year on the day of atonement, but one that has been offered and now is, is done. There's no more sheeps. There's no more lambs to sacrifice. There's been one sacrifice done that somehow covers for the sins that we've done against others and a redemption that's been brought about so that we might be free. This goes all the way back to remember the pierced language from Zechariah, Isaiah 53, another little prophet who says this, talking about the coming Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that has now brought us peace. With his wounds, we have been healed. So do you see that, that what's necessary in a world that's so much messier than what some of us want to think through in our theories about justice and what's wrong with the world is that it is not a clear us versus them, but rather it's an us versus us. And the only way for there to be any fixing is for the God who has all the power to do something about it, entering into our mess so that we might not be alone in our oppression, but also who might save us from the way that we oppress others. 
We're just, I'm just using the language that you guys want to use right now, whether we want to call it being sinned against or suffering, whatever language you want to use. This is the reality of what has happened in the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now notice something though, is what it says right back here in, uh, where are we at here? Uh, the beginning of verse 24, that we've been put right, not just through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, not just you know, the propitiation, but by what? By his grace as a gift. These two words are a repeating of the same Greek word. It's by his, like, it's a grace gift. It's a gift gift is what he's given us. It's a grace grace. So what does that mean for us? Is that the putting right of God is a generous gift of grace. It is not earned by you. It is not earned by, in particular, your putting right of yourself or this world. If you think that you have to um, either put yourself right and get yourself all together in order for God's work through Jesus to like cover you, you will, that's, that's the legalism and religion of where you have to be perfect before God looks at you. Simultaneously though, there is a sort of legalism and moralism that is evolving in this moment. Here we go. That that is not focused on simply putting myself right in order for God to love me, but me acknowledge that I need to go out and put the world right in order for God to love me. Where we take on the task and the responsibility of Jesus in both of those cases. And in doing so, we turn our religious works into something that is simply only for me to prove myself and our acts of justice similarly as something for me to prove myself as just. In so doing, turning both our religious works and our movements of justice, not as flowing from a heart of love for God and for neighbor, but actually for myself, for me to prove myself. The fact that it's grace means that nothing that you contribute on either side has anything to do with it. The fact that Jesus so loved you that he died and not just loved you enough to die, but to rise again. It's grace. It has to be grace. Otherwise, as you move forward into your life, it's always going to be about you getting something out of it, whether that's justice or your religious do-goodism. Where am I? I'm, I'm just all over the place today. Um, do-gooding, manipulating situations and manipulating people in order to prove yourself uh, that you are just. But if in Christ you've already been justified, then you can actually do justice without having to prove yourself. You can actually truly be generous because you don't have to prove yourself as being a generous person because all of the proving has already been done in the fact that you've received the gift of God. So the cross does what? It declares that we actually are put right, not by our putting right, but by the fact that Jesus has done it for us freely. Let's keep going. Verse 25, what does it say? All of this, all this work of Jesus, all this work of the cross, all of this grace gift, all of this putting right, propitiation, his redemption was what? To show God's righteousness, God's own put rightness, because of his divine forbearance or, or patience, as that could be translated, he passed over our former sins. It was to show his put rightness, that God is the one in the right at the present time so that he might be, again, this is all the same Greek word, just. He might be the right one and the one who justifies, the one who makes right of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of this was to show God's, God's work for us to show God's righteousness. And so why is the propitiation and the redemption somehow show God's righteousness, that he is both just and justifier, that he is both put right and the one who puts right, is because our oppression against 
one another, our idolatry of turning from God and the injustice that we do to each other is based off of God's revealed law, something that ends in death. It ends in exile as we saw for Israel. So how can God simultaneously redeem a people and bring them close and to have them be the family of justice that he has desired since page one of the Bible while at the same time being faithful to the implications of their injustice? It is through the work of propitiation and redemption that God is still true. He is not just, you know, I, I saw, you know, your gossip or your lying or the genocide that you did or the whatever, like I'm not, and, and it's, it's okay. I'm going to let it go because I really like you. That would not be a good God. A God who just kind of opened the doors of, this is why what's called universalism is just to me. is what it allows is for, um, a God who just kind of like, you know, brushes grave injustices underneath the rug. Paul says that God must somehow prove himself to be the one who is just. He's not letting sin go unchecked. And yet based off of his love, the one who makes right. And through the death of Jesus, him dying in our place for our sins, what's happening there is that God is somehow giving him the guilt and the exile and the death that was bound for us so that he might give us the life and the redemption and the forgiveness that Jesus has. So God's not overlooking sin because he's fickle or forgetful, but part of his patience, his kindness, he's not willing as it says that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. So in the cross, God is just, he's right in that he does not let sin get off the hook by carrying it in his own body in the person of Jesus. It's his retributive justice at work. Simultaneously in the cross, he is the justifier. It's how we're put right. He is giving us restorative justice. So this comes together to, as um, theologian Miroslav Wolf puts it, that the cross, unlike many American conceptions of it, is not forgiveness pure and simple, but God's setting aright the world of injustice and deception. It is not just God's, oh, it's okay. You know, Jesus died. It's, it's justice that's happening there. So all this comes together then. What about Easter Sunday as we begin to wrap up? Let's jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter five because it's one of my favorite passages. And uh, that's the one that I wanted to do. We're right after talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And again, you can just read through any of the epistles this week and you're gonna find much of the same stuff that we're talking about. Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, the apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth and he's just spent some time reflecting on what the resurrection of Jesus, not just his death, but his resurrection with it means for us today. In it, what does he write? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or he or she is a, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and now has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world back to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, which we just talked about and entrusting to us now a message, not just a ministry, but a message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And what do we say as, as we we're, we're appealing, we implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness. 
the put rightness, the justice, the what, whatever language you want to use, the righteousness of God. So what Paul back in Romans called restor, uh, the, the righteousness or the justice, the justification, in 2 Corinthians, he calls it reconciliation. That in which groups or parties or people who have been separated through sin or injustice or whatever it might be are being brought back together again. The first dynamic that he gets at here is God and us, how we through Christ have been reconciled to one another. As he continues throughout the rest of this letter and and even in his other letters in in Ephesians in particular, it's what it's all about, is that we have been reconciled to not just God, but reconciled to one another. Across racial, socioeconomic, political lines, that we are a reconciled people. We are a put right people. And so what does the resurrection mean? If we've been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, how does this all play out? We're going to be getting to this in a lot more detail with Pastor Lorenzo next week as we move into the new family of justice. But, but just a couple of reflections as we close today. The resurrection of Jesus, not just his death, but the fact that he got up again means that resurrection life is not something that we're just waiting for. It's something that begins today. What does, what does Paul say? He does not say the old is passing away. Behold, the new will be here. It has passed away. It is come. That they are, you are currently, if you are in Christ, a new creation. So what this means is that the resurrection life has begun today. It is something to participate in right now, right here, when you have lunch this afternoon, here in a little bit, as you go into your week. Resurrection life is yes, fully coming, like don't, but it's something that can begin to be entered into now. What else does the resurrection of Jesus mean? It means that this world matters to God. This biological, physical, eating fish dinner with the disciples world matters to God. We are not, as it's been called throughout church history, the heresy of Gnosticism, which separates the uh, immaterial and the spiritual from the physical. I was watching the Little Prince movie on Netflix last night, not in my notes. Um, It's really good, Uh, except for one thing is, um, there's this line where I think it's Jeff Bridges' character, you know, it's, it's like an animated kid's movie. This is all the references you get now, is he reflects that the things that are most important are invisible or the things that are most essential are invisible. That's not full-blown Gnosticism, but it's, it smells of it. I'll just put it that way. That the biblical perception of what the resurrection means is that in fact, it is the physical, the seen and the unseen, which reconciled together is what is most essential. That we are not simply here for spiritual salvation where we fly up to heaven, get wings and harps, but rather, as he says, that God, heaven might reconcile itself with earth, the material world is ground zero for the inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth. It is where we are going. And so similarly, when we are ambassadors of reconciliation, our work is not just the message of reconciliation, but the ministry of reconciliation, our doing and our speaking, our doing and our saying. I mean, this is just, all of this is coming together where when we think about the reconciliation, this physical world matters, that the new heavens and new earth are happening and they're beginning to dawn even in this moment, that message, especially after this past week, especially after these past few months is almost as unbelievable. But at the same time, the thing that we want to hear as much as Jesus's own resurrection in the midst of the brokenness of this world, in the midst of this, the separation that's happening 
in the midst of the, what, what, what political fractures that are happening across families, uh, everybody's opinion about what to do with the pandemic and what to wear, what not to wear, that the reality is, is that somehow through the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of these pieces, though being fragmented, for those who return by faith to trust in Jesus, like Abraham did, like Adam didn't, and what caused the whole mess, is that we are being reconciled back to God. And in the process, also being reconciled to one another. And so the hope of the new heavens and new earth is something that we can experience today. I don't even know where I'm at anymore. Yeah, so you know, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna end here with, uh, like the apostle Paul, my appeal, the thing that I implore each and every single one of you, as Paul says here, is to be reconciled to God. To lay down your idealism or your hope of your being able to put yourself right or of humanity's ability to put itself right fully in, in utopian vision. You are never going to reach the perfection that you want. You are ne- this, this world, there's, there is, I mean, it is so hellbent, quite literally, that, that Jesus refers to this world having a prince or a king that rules over it, this king, prince of darkness, that he is seeking to regain this world from. And so, some of us have just such a high view of our own ability to, to muster up righteousness and put ourselves right or, or muster up a utopian vision that you have to realize the only hope is the inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth that happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that, that is the place that we go, not only to cleanse ourselves from all the uncleanness and all the unrighteousness, all the injustice and idolatry that this world has placed upon us, but also the, the, the source and the point that we look at for our hope that a new world is breaking in, even in the midst of all of the darkness and chaos of this current one. And so my, my prayer is that you would be reconciled to God. Some of you have, have been following Jesus for some time, or you at least have been claiming to, but the reality is, is that Jesus has simply been somebody that you look to while you yourself are trying to put yourself right or put this world right in order so that you can prove yourself to God. And you, you haven't seen the fact that it has to be a grace gift, that you're never gonna be able to do it for yourself. Others of you have been checking things out for quite some time and we're so happy to have you or your brand, you, this is like your first week, you jumped right in. Uh, thank you for hanging on. That, that my, my, my ask is that you might consider and really look into this person and work of Jesus to have a true view of yourself. How is putting yourself right going for you? How is the human condition really going for our world? And maybe there's something to be said here for the apostle Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and yet all are justified through this work of redemption and propitiation through the work of Jesus and his death on the cross. And what would it look like for you to place your faith and to trust this Jesus that his death was in your place and that his resurrection is the thing that leads the way for your own and for you to begin to experience that for yourself.